welcome to this special episode of The Time and Place. Uh, today we have the honor of sitting down with Pastor Doug Wilson to talk about his new book, Ride Sally Ride. And Pastor Wilson, great to meet you. Honor to talk with you. Uh, awesome book. Yeah, Thanks for having here. me on. Julian, Julian read it first and then he told me to read it. I was like, oh, this is great. So yeah, we actually have the opportunity to talk to you. It's, it's Thanks. awesome. Thanks so for joining us. When, uh, when we started reading the book, or when I started reading the book, it seemed more obviously you wrote this before all the craziness going on now, right? I mean, the concept came way well before COVID, well before all the government overreach. So, what was the what was the catalyst for the concept and for the story? I for, um, the the catalyst for the central hook in it came out of a conversation with a friend, um, and that was probably the result of some work that he was doing on. Um, uh, transsexual surgeries and mm. whatnot. Uh, so that was the controversy back then right. that made him think that we needed a like a film version of a Phineas moment. Mm. He had that idea for maybe doing some short film, uh, and then that project got uh, sidelined. So I asked him if I could use the hook for a, a book, uh, and so that was probably three years ago. Oh, wow. Mm. So, wow. Yeah. Th that, that was what I was kind of wondering, like, why, why a novel instead of, um, you know, being someone who writes nonfiction theology books and fiction, uh, and both well, <laughs> surprisingly, uh, why, why a novel and not just like another like theology book or just straight kind of, um, expository book. I've, I've found that some of the central things that I care about very much in my end that I, talk about in my nonfiction are uh, driven much closer to home in fiction. Mm. And the, prob the problem with most Christian fiction is not that, it's not that fiction isn't potent, but they're not using the potency to make these particular points. Mm. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm gonna continue to do nonfiction, but I've, I've in discovered increasingly that a lot of people read fiction that wouldn't read the nonfiction and they get it. Uh, right. They get what you're driving at in fiction more readily. Right. What was, what was strange when I was reading it too, how you talk about it really drives the point home. If, if this book had come out in the nineties, all of the, the villain characters would have seemed almost uh, like caricatures right. in, in that sense. But now, in the times we're living in now, it doesn't seem that far off. Like I could see all of these people existing and doing what they do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge once made the point that it's impossible in these times to be a satirist because <laughs> you make up some absurd thing and it's the craziest thing you could think of. And then right after you hit publish, um, there somebody is doing it in real life. <laughs> <laughs> right. I heard, um, I think it was William Wallace in, in, in Braveheart that he actually, when he gets shot in the shoulder, he actually got shot in the neck and I guess in the true history and kept fighting and everything, but they changed it because they thought it wouldn't be believable in the movie. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things like, oh, well, no one will believe that. It's like, right. nope, this is kind of what we're seeing in the news right now. <laughs> Yeah, it's, so, uh, it's pretty crazy. The characters on the other side too, the, the heroic characters, I guess, uh, you know, when you're looking at them, you have the two kind, you have uh, Asahel, who's the real gung-ho, he has conviction, he knows what needs to be done and he does it. And then you have someone like Benson who kind of swallows his conviction for propriety. Right. Uh, so it, it seems, especially now with the election coming up and all the controversy of, uh, you know, Timothy Keller saying like, well, there's no prescribed way from the Bible on how to deal with topics that are wrong. I'm willing to say they're wrong. I'm not willing to tell you what you need to do for them. Right. So if you're, if you're surrounded by Bensons, what's a remedy for that to shake them out of that? Or if you are a Benson and maybe you realize it from reading this book, you see yourself in that character. Yeah. So Benson's problem is he's a, he's a, an inhabitant of the mainstream. So he, he does what's done he repeats what's repeated. Mm. He doesn't want um, people attacking him for extremist convictions. And later on in the book, uh, you discover it's just a hint that he was kind of a solid character back when he first got married. 
and he flinched. He mm-hmm. he drew back, um, and and then just drifted after that point. So the um, the the thing that that I would say to uh, in response to the Keller advice is that uh, is this advice that you would be willing to give across the board? Okay, let's say let's say Alabama was still segregated. Okay, let's say the Jim, Jim Crow laws were still operative in the South. Would you say that all, that all that's necessary is for a Christian to do is say, I think racial bigotry is wrong, but I'm not going to tell you mm. how to go about fixing the problem with Jim Crow. Um, Tim Keller wouldn't give that kind of thinking 10 seconds. He'd give it the back of his hand. Right, right, right. We're, we're, so, so where would maybe like like the idea of incrementalism or something come in with that? Because I know um, with, with those things, as far as like the Civil War and ending slavery and stuff, there might have been a a better way, a less bloody way to to do that. But but not um, I don't know. I guess maybe is that kind of a, an approach, a misguided incrementalism or something that that is actually yeah, it's, unfaithful. It's, it's it's not so much uh, misguided incrementalism, is that it's incrementalism that's trying to go left and right at the same time mm-hmm. okay uh, so if, if you're an incrementalist then you know what you know your destination you know where you want to get mm-hmm. you're not shy about explaining to people that that's where you want to go right. and you're not going to demand all of it this year mm-hmm. you'll be back next year for your next mm-hmm. concession right there's you're, a plan okay you, there's a plan and it's a coherent plan right. but if you if you have a system where you say on abortion right on pro-life activism all we have to do is say that we're pro-life and i'm not going to dictate any kind of strategy or response or anybody can do absolutely anything to to display their pro-life convictions up to and including voting for joe biden who's going to appoint pro pro aborts to the supreme court if you if you are conscientious about that approach, you will also say, all you have to do is say that you're anti-racist and that is consistent with voting for the segregationist candidate. Mm. Right? If you're right. willing to do that, then at least you're consistent. Yeah, the, the Benson section, one of the, one of the interesting uh, lines was, uh, he, said, he said he was a decent and well-meaning man in the main, but he was a good man without categories. And a good man without categories is sometimes not a very good man. Yes. What, uh, can you maybe unpack that a little bit more? I mean, maybe we kind of just have, but like. <laughs> yeah. So what I mean it. by categories, that what I, what I um, mean by categories is he was a man without a worldview. Mm. He, he, didn't ha- he didn't have a storage room with shelves on it with a, a, an alphabetical system that would enable him to take something that came up in his day and then go put it on the, on a shelf in the right place. He didn't have categories. And so that meant that everything that came up, he just had to throw into the junk room mm. or he, he just had to throw it in there willy nilly. Yeah. So, and, and then you start making bad decisions because you can't remember what you believed. There's something under the pile over there. <laughs> uh, basically a man without a cat, a man without categories is a man without a, uh, systematic framework for understanding the world and that's right. where benson was so it's like it, it's interesting because it's all in there it's just disorganized it's just yeah. he has nothing everybody has something but it's there's no structure there yeah right and for uh, the for the characters on the opposite side that's fine because right. if you don't have any if any categories it can be whatever you want it to be at any moment correct and mm-hmm. that's exactly that's what they're striving for right is a world is a world without categories. Mm. So everything can be your own made up category. Right. Mm. Mm. Now like the, the fluidity or relativity or like, right. you know, yeah. everything relative. Exactly. Yeah. The okay. flip side to that would be Asahel who has all the categories. He, you know, he knows how he feels about things and he knows why he feels that way about things. So right. when the moment for action comes, he's ready philosophically, uh, spiritually and morally. Now, the, the struggle with that is when we're reading the book, uh, someone like me, especially who tends to have an itchy trigger finger, you know, we get real gung ho about it. Like, yes, yeah, somebody should, you know, do something about this. So the, the hard part, I guess, is how do you walk that balance between 
something needs to be done and I'm just looking for a fight. Yeah. <laughs> so what you have to do is be aware. First, the first thing is to be aware of that temptation. Mm. So Jesus turns to his disciples when they want to call down fire on the Samaritan village. Mm -hmm. um, and he says, you know not what spirit you are of. Okay, so we know that there's a, uh, but the, the, the disciples who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan village, they had a Bible verse. I mean, that happened in, <laughs> that happened in the Old Testament. Uh, and so there's apparently a, a, apparently a good time to call down fire, to consume you and your 50. And there's other times when it's not, it's not appropriate to do that. So you have to be aware that there's a, there's a right way for being right, and there's a wrong way of being right. Okay, so the, okay. there are those two categories. It's not just right and wrong. Over on the right side, there's a right way of being right and a wrong way of being right. Okay, so I can be a follower of Jesus in the wrong way. I can be fighting on David's side, which is the right side, but still be a Joab. Okay, and then it really gets complicated when you have um, uh, someone uh, uh, fight who's on the wrong side, and he's more of a noble character than some of the people who are on the right side. Um, this is why reading through the Old Testament, reading through Scripture carefully, helps you get the, the framework. There is such a thing as being of the wrong spirit on the right side. There is such a thing. And so every time <clears throat> before you go into battle, if you're 19 years old and you're ready to set off the next civil war, um, you need to be aware that that's, there's a temptation there for you. I would encourage young men who are gung-ho, trigger-happy, whatever it is, to attach themselves to graybeards, <coughs> excuse me, graybeards who have been tested in battle, mm. who've, been that, who've been there before, um, and they're, they're not shrinking from conflict, but they, they're the kind of people who could tell you, oh, steady, wait, not yet. Mm. You know, don't fire till we see the whites of their eyes. Right. Right. Yeah. As we get into kind of expanding, you know, talking about the book more, um, we've talked about it before and pretty extensively. So I, I kind of take it for granted that everybody kind of knows the premise of the book and the plot and everything. So, but let me just read the back of the, of the book, just so I, it's, it's out there and everybody kind of knows what we're talking about as kind of a framework for this discussion. Uh, so it says it's two decades in the future and a Christian college student named Ace Hartwick has just destroyed his neighbor's so-called wife, actually a sex bot named Sally, in a trash compactor. Soon, Ace, Ace will be on trial for murder. Unfortunately for Ace, everyone despises his kind of radical Christianity, and in the fragile America of the future, all the juries are fixed. So that kind of like sets it up of like kind of what we're talking about here. And uh, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to make sure that that was kind of, we, we, you and I have talked about it all the time on the podcast, yeah. so we <laughs> assume everybody kind of knows what we're, talk about in here but it, with that in the future uh not so not so seemingly <laughs> distant future and again you you had this idea and wrote this before 2020 which is saying something yeah. really you know and uh, i was just wondering you know what how, how would this how would the pandemic and the george floyd incident and every, everything that's going on in 2020 murder hornets you know <laughs> everything <laughs> uh contribute to the the troubles of 2024 so-called in the book as, as far as we kind of know how the book sets it up and, and yeah. when, when ace goes to alabama and kind of gets it all explained to kind of how everything went down um but man what you know i won't say prophecy here but what <laughs> so yeah, i, I can't tell you i can't tell you how many times people have said what do you mean 20 <laughs> years in the future this is yeah. like two this is more like two months in the future, which I didn't know when I did the bulk of the writing. Right. Well, the thing that's surprising about the last year is how fast it went off a cliff. Mm. So I've been seeing the, the decline that I've been writing, the, the, the decline that I'm writing about here, I've been addressing in various ways my entire adult life. I've been mm. talking about this and the decline has been very evident, but it was as though somebody gave a signal in 2020 and everything started happening at once. It started to pick up speed. It started to accelerate. And that was the, that was the surprising 
thing. It's not the quality of the rebellion that's surprising because for any observant worldview thinker, the quality of the rebellion has been evident for decades. But the quantity of the, re the rebellion, how much they're willing to throw away, how much they're willing to burn down, uh, mm. that has been somewhat surprising. Mm. Yeah, the, we tend to think, think these things will happen eventually, right? Like, right. Know, I guess maybe from history, how we see the downfall of things, it's, it's usually not overnight, you know, the, the fall of empires and stuff. But yeah, you have these little short spurts of, of crazy, crazy years, you know, like 1969 or something. There were a lot of things just kind of seemed to happen or, you know, right. and just kind of goes crazy. Um, and, and in that, like kind of what we're seeing, I think one of the most, one of the clearest things that we've, we've seen in, in 2020 and kind of the prophetic view of this book and of what we're seeing is, uh, was, was this line that um, the the kind of uh, corrupt lawyer and his team were talking about? He says they they knew the law, they knew what justice ought to be, right? I, I, that line really like hit me. Of like that that's really how it is. It's not you know what these are, this is what justice is and truth and these things. It's this is what it ought to be, and we're right. we're changing. And when they say this is what justice ought to be, yeah. what that actually means is this is what we want mm -hmm. this is what we're demanding right now and mm -hmm. justice is defined as that which they currently desire whatever they desire that's manifestly the just option right and that's why that's why the chant becomes no justice no peace because if we don't get what we want we won't leave you alone that it right. works that way hmm. exactly so one of the sections that really stuck out to me that when I read it, I had to like call people like, hey, you need to read this book, uh, was when Ace and Stephanie are having a conversation in the coffee shop about the idea of lust. Yeah. And he, he essentially points out to her that the problem is not that men have become more lustful, that men have always liked to look and women have always liked to be looked at. But the, the difference is now that the, the display is bigger because what it came across to me, the way that I understood it is that the display is bigger because there's so many other things to look at. Like we're, we're so over-sexualized that they're competing for real estate, I guess. Yeah, that, that's correct. Correct. So what's happened is in a world where the women are chaste, you know, in, a, in a world where chastity is respected, honored, and looked up to, there's only one honorable sexual outlet for men who have a very, uh, a much, uh, a more pronounced sexual interest than the women do. So when the women are chaste and virtuous, uh, men marry and civilizations are built by men with families to feed. Mm. So when you, when that's the lawful sexual outlet, what, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll put scare quotes around this whole thing, but basically there is a sexual marketplace and what promiscuity and porn have done is they've crashed the market. Okay, so yeah. what, they've, what they've done is they've made sex cheap and available and no, no cost. Men don't have to stand up straight. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to have a job. Um, so men can uh, spiral down into uh, sort of a worthless laziness be, uh, because there's no sexual incentive. Now, right. somebody's going to come in and say, but why do men need a sexual incentive? Why, why, why can't we have a perfect world? Well, the same reason you can't have pink rainbows in your backyard. <laughs> you, you, we have to deal with we have to deal with the world that we're actually living in. Right. And in in the world that we're actually living in, if women give it away, men don't stand up straight. Mm. Okay. Yes. Um, in a, in a world where women have high expectations and they want a man to be faithful to her, to take care of their children together, to provide for them till death do us part, and that's, and that's the only way sex is going to happen. Um, not only does sex happen, but so does civilization. Mm. Right. It's, it's really interesting to see that, because uh, like you say, civilization is built by men who have to feed families with the you know, freedom, sex, sexual freedom uh, there's no more families. So who cares what happens to civilization? Correct. That's, right. And, wow. and so the, what happened when the sexual revolution in the 60s went forward in the same, in, in the name of liberating women 
so that they could behave sexually the way the men do, mm. which women generally don't want to do. Right. But no. that we liberated, uh, liberated women to be like men, which had the effect of liberating all the men to be pigs. Right. Mm. Yeah, it was, a, it seems to be like there was a, an equality aspect there of men are act, behaving like pigs and women don't, but we can. So we're, so things have to be equal. So we're going to behave like pigs. It's like, no, 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 that's, they weren't supposed to be doing that. <laughs> like that's, right. That right. just drives everything down. And, yeah. and first thing you know, you're trying to wonder, you're trying to figure out how the, the, uh, the drag queen is reading to the kids at library story hour. How right. did we get here? Yeah, that's that's one of those things that no way, no way in the future. It's just, no way. You're, you're 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 talking absurd. No one wants to do that. That's you know. Yeah. If you had predicted that, if you had predicted that ten years ago, <laughs> you would you would have been laughed out of public life. Right. Yeah, that kind of goes into uh, the the sort of parenthetical subtitle uh, of of Ride Sally Ride: Sex Rules. And I kind of like how you put it at the beginning, like that. You know, when you read that, it's like, well, a punctuation. What uh <laughs> that can have a lot of that's that's a very layered uh couple couple words there right, right. so what uh you want to kind of explain like how, yeah. how the, the the dimensions of that yeah the um i distinguish between two ways the phrase could be taken one is what are the mores and the customs uh, you know what are the sex rules in toronto mm. they could be moral or immoral um ex expecting sex by the second date is one of the sex rules of a of a people or, a, you know, that sort of thing. Right. But the other sense, the sense in which uh, I'm, one, I'm arguing for in this book is uh, sex, the way God made it, is like gravity. Uh, mm. it, it, there's a certain reality to it that you cannot mold or shape into something more to your liking. Mm. So the ancient poet Horace said, you can drive nature out with a pitchfork, but she will come back again. Mm. So nature's re na reality is going to recoil on, on you. Mm. And then I say, um, this novel is about uh, sex rules in both of those, um, in both those de definitions. The sex rules that a relativistic, nihilistic culture is trying to adopt and the reality of God's creation. Now, what's interesting to me about that idea of driving out nature, but it comes back at you, there's that snapback, is that, Apart from uh, maybe you guys and a few others, the, the reform community tends to have to have a consistency because the only way your belief systems work is if they're all consistent. But it seems like typical American evangel evangelism, which I grew up in, uh, it's all I grew up in too, and also the secular humanism are both trying to remold sex into what they want it to be that's more pleasing. Like, uh, you know, American Christianity is trying to sterilize it more where we don't, I grew up with no biblical concept of sexuality or, or sex in general. It was just kind of a, we don't talk about it. We don't do it when you're married, you'll figure it out. And whereas in the other, the other side is do whatever you want and you'll figure it out. Right. And, and it seems to be recoiling on both ends. Yes. The, the world wants to say, explore, explore your lusts, do whatever you want. Then, and that, that adventurism is going to lead you to your fulfillment. Um, and then uh, Christians have been pretty silent on the subject mm -hmm. while things have gotten worse and worse in the, in the culture around us. And you used to be able to get away with that when the outside culture basically shared the same sexual customs that the Christians did. You know, when, when the secular world looked down on divorce, and we did too, when the secular world expected you to be faithful to your spouse, and we did too, then okay, you don't. You're not swimming upstream when you when a couple who are sexually naive get married. Well, maybe a bunch of them did figure it out, but but now we're standing on an un uh, uh, an unrelenting uh, waterfall of false information and propaganda from the other side that runs directly contrary to what the Word of God teaches. And we've got to be equipped. We've got to do better than we've been doing. It kind of reminds me of, I, I just recently read your uh, Re Recovering Lost Tools of Learning. Um, and I, I have two kids, three, three and two. And so we're going to figure out the whole school <laughs> thing. And we definitely want to go to the classical Christian education route if we can. So uh, just definitely uh, looking at that, uh, how you're talking about uh, private schools and how this kind of became an issue through the 90s a, a little bit, or, you know, maybe earlier than that, but like in the 60s, 
prayer was in public schools, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least until the 60s. So there was no, like kind of what you're talking about, like we're kind of going the same direction a little bit. And then the uh, same with like private Christian schools and in public schools, there was kind of those, those values were still there. So we didn't see the storm that was kind of coming with that. Yeah. I, I remember as a, as a kid in the government school um, in early elementary, I remember opening every day with prayer. <laughs> That's, that seems crazy, but it's like, yeah, it is that idea. Like we were kind of going the same direction. So there's eh, no, you know, no danger there, but then, right. you know, it took a, hard veer off and we're like okay hang on we need to keep track of exactly. this and that's what happens you don't have it, it's just you know i can't i can't remember how you exactly put it in in, in that book of like it was kind of like a christianized school and, and that's how a lot of private schools are is kind of a, a secularized you just you do all the same things and learn all the same way but there's prayer you know right. and it's like well that's not a christian education necessarily or if you like have prayer and a chap if you have prayer in a bible class or chair, uh, prayer and chapel, that doesn't make it a Christian worldview right. academy. What you're going to do is graduate good Christian kids or evangelical Christian kids who, like Benson, have no categories. Mm. Right. The right. scary thing when that happens, too, is I, I went to a, a private Christian school, and it was kind of like that. Uh, and the scary thing is that when, when you leave that place and you don't have categories, you start picking up the ones around you. And, yeah. you know, we're seeing that happen now with the whole backlash against history and existence. Just the idea that, you know, no one was good before we existed. We're the only ones that have ever figured this out. We're the only ones that are right. Yeah. And it's, it's so strange to see Christians just jump on board with that. Which, you know, the idea that everybody who's ever owned a slave in history is completely evil and has to be torn down is strange when we have a book in the New Testament written to a slave owner. Right. Where he's not called evil or wicked or any of those things. Right. And Abraham, the father of our faith, was a slave owner. Um, basically, all you have to do is walk through the Bible. And this is something that I decided to do early on. And this is a large part of what's gotten me in so much trouble, is I decided that I was not going to apologize for any text in the mm -hmm. Bible. So if you show it to me in the Bible, I'm good with it. And I'm not going to back down. Once the exegesis is done, you know, there's, you don't want to wing off and say, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. And you, know, you don't want to handle verses like that glibly, right. chop off your hand and then discover later on that that's not what the verse meant. <laughs> right. I, um, I, I used to, uh, I used to make Instagram posts of, you know, how you'll see a sunset or a nice mountain range or something with a, with one of the Bible verses everyone likes, you know, yeah. uh, I, I would do one of, you know, like, uh, he was commanded to dash their children against the rocks, <laughs> with like, but what, on a on a scene with like a uh, 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 cliffs, you know, uh, oceanside cliffs, and then like a, a, a nice meadow with like a stump cut, you know, in 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 a meadow with uh, if a man's genitals has been crushed, he cannot enter the kingdom. Yeah. You know, it's like any of these crazy like that's in the Bible, and that's just as important and just as as holy as John three sixteen, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of these things, kind of hide and, and punt those sections of the Bible that we just don't understand or have Sam Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the war. <laughs> <laughs> right. On a nice meadow picture of like <laughs> in cursive, you know, kind of <laughs> like, hey, we want to start posting Bible verses along sunsets. Let's let's do it. But <laughs> so the thing about funny. the troubles too, and you've talked about how people said, you know, two decades, two months maybe, is that it's it's starting to look more that way. So when I'm reading this, what what I wondered is is this kind of thing, is a national split inevitable? Do, do you think we're headed towards the cliff and there's no writing it? Yeah, right, right now, apart from a massive reformation of some sort, I don't see how we hold this together. Mm. Right. 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 You know, no, we're talking about like how um, the... Uh, Praying in school doesn't, you know, does not a Christian school make kind of thing. Is there is there some swinging the other side as far as seeing sort of progressive uh, atheistic thinking leaning towards biblical truth and Christian thinking, be just to be rebellious of of or to kind of poke holes in their own uh, perspectives and their own worldviews. Like one of the things that that I thought was really astonishing and really true was the part where you talk about how uh like the tr the trouble with darwinism right is mostly atheists didn't mind punching holes in what they regarded as 
a sham and embarrassment to science. So like, it's right. actually like rational reason-based atheistic, you know, kind of worldly secular worldviews poking holes into what we've been saying is it's ridiculousness for a long time. Uh, and then actually kind of agreeing with us, uh, you know, you see the kind of non-Christians against the woke scolds and things of like actual true values of freedom of speech and things. Yeah. It's like, Hey, we're kind of on the same team here, but you know, that was, I think that, it, 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 would that really be how it, it kind of, at least Darwinism is, gets dismantled that way? I think that's one of the, one of the factors, yes. And another one is, um, uh, I met, I was at a conference this, over the, uh, within this last year, I was at a conference where I met an, uh, an atheist, a noted atheist, who was there at the conference because, not, not as an adversary, but he was hostile to postmodern relativism mm. and and goo thought. He believed he believed in objective truth, um, which I don't think you can do as an atheist. Right. But he was but he was committed to it, and he knew that on that question the Christians were his natural allies. Mm. Um, I think that I think we're going to see more of that. I don't think it's going to be the decisive point. I think that. I think it's got. I think the Reformation that we need has to uh, has to proceed under the name of Christ, mm. and um, various types of non-believers might join together with us in the pursuit. Mm. Like for, I mean, right. for instance, you know, you and Christopher Hitchens, the whole Collision documentary, you're on the opposite side of a lot of things, but he was pro-life. Yeah. He, you know, he, logically, he couldn't find another way to be. Right. So honest, atheist being honest. And right. being consistent, like, hey, this, if we're going to say, like, just even like what from their work perspective, an evolutionary stage, like, hey, what is this but a human heartbeat and a human life? You know, if we found this on Mars, it would be life. And just kind of being honest with those things. Uh, yeah, that was, that was incredible. Um, yeah. Uh, June, did you have a question there or did, was that? Because I, yeah, I it, no, it's okay. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things that I did like to in the book, I don't want to give away too many of the plot points, but there's a, a section where two of the characters are reunited at an Assemblies of God church. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> that was, that's interesting to me. Uh, reformed people tend to be characterized as curmudgeons and have a lot of uh, denominationalism. Like, well, right. these are correct, these are not. And in, in this worldview, um, what sparked the, the question for me was Darren Doan had posted uh, a comment about how the new orthodoxy or the, the new Christendom is, do you have a backbone and are you willing to fight? Yeah. And in this book, that seems to be how it is. Like, these are Assemblies of God we don't agree on everything, but they're solid and people are saved here. Um, right. So I guess in, in how would you look at that Christendom? Like, how do we, how do we, where do we, what, what are we missing that we can't link arms anymore and fight for the truth with people who on all the important points are right with us? Right. So I, I believe I'm a firm believer in mere Christendom. Mm -hmm. I believe what we do, we have to do in the name of Jesus. And I believe that, one of the things that has shipwrecked Christian um, uh, endeavors to speak in the public square is that the, the sort of Christians who wake up in the morning knowing what they believe tend to believe, tend to wake up in the morning knowing what they believe, not only on the issues of primary importance, but also secondary importance and also tertiary importance. And so when they get in an opportunity to, to, contribute or rule or to do something in the public square, it becomes their denominational perspective out to mm. the edges. Okay? okay. And then it turns politics into intra-denominational battles. Mm. Um, and I think that we ought to uh, proceed more gradually mm. where, we, where we look at the lay of the land and see who's standing on the Lord's side and who's not. Uh, so, and, and some of these uh, moments, I've, I've done this kind of ecumenical thing in, in, uh, in one of my other uh, novels, actually a couple of my other novels uh, as well. And uh, that sort of thing is borne out in my experience. Mm. So many, a number of years ago, we had a local controversy where it was a local controversy erupted <coughs> where I was, I was accused of being a racist and mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And uh, people who had people who had known me for years and who knew that I wasn't 
a race. They knew that. They backed away. All right. They put some distance because of the people heaving dead cats and whatever. <laughs> and then in the middle of that big, there was a big cafeteria food fight. In the middle of that, I was invited by a, a, a minister I knew to go to a luncheon of uh, local charismatic ministers that I'd never met with before, didn't have anything to do with. Uh, but they invited me to come to that. I went to it. And these men said, don't worry about it. This is all about Jesus. We, you know, then they prayed, they prayed for me, blessed me. And, and I thought, why? Why are the people who are much closer to me doctrinally sidling away? And the people with whom I have very robust doctrinal disagreements willing to associate with me? It's, and I wanted to return the favor um, in, in my books. There are situations where if we're going to be shipped in cattle cars off to the happy, happy, joy, joy re-education camp, um, I'm going to be there in the camp with Assemblies of God mm -hmm. uh, pastors. Yeah. Might right. as well be friends with them now. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of the kind of the strength of categories again, and where everything is a close-handed issue, and then that's it, it, no, there's no, yeah, unity there in, in what is that? I see that with like the, in the IBF uh, community, the fundamentalists of like everything is a closed hand issue. So then there is no, like if you baptize wrong, then you are going to hell. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah. I appreciate that's something I did appreciate in your uh, the Papa Don't Pope book the, about Catholicism of you seem to have more of a um, compassionate look on Catholicism as far as like, uh, I think what you say like, it's our, 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 our ugly sister, but only we can call her ugly. Like, right? <laughs> <laughs> I could call it that, but you can't, right? Like there's still some familiarity and like, uh, like familiarity there, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Um, so the, one of the big things that led to like the troubles of 2024 was uh, the great row reversal decision. Mm. Right. And that was, that was a big part of that. And, you know, kind are you, of are you sure you're right not a now. prophet? Yeah. Are you sure? No. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't believe Amy Coney Barrett's name was in your book, but uh, <laughs> that's definitely become a fear uh, for some people now that, that, that might be possible. Is that possible or how would that play down to the States and, and like kind of what would that really look like? Uh, with the Supreme Court situation and in Constitution, all that right now. Yeah, I I don't think I do think it's possible to reverse Roe. I I believe that it's more possible to reverse Roe than it would be to have a pro-life amendment passed that applied to all fifty states. Mm. Okay. okay, and back in the eighties, the pro-life movement divided over You know, there was a big division over do we do we uh, go for a reversal of Roe, which would leave abortion legal in some states, or do we try to shoot the moon and outlaw abortion with a constitutional, constitutional human rights, rights amendment? Now, I'm of the mind, as the cross-politic guys uh, like to say, I'm in favor of run all the plays, just mm. any, anything that might work, I'm in favor of. Um, if, but the way, the way we are today, the divisions in America are so inflamed and so pronounced that a reversal of Roe that kicked it back to the states would, in effect, I think, blow the union apart. Mm. Okay, and that's part of what I'm assuming in the setup to this book, that as Roe, as Roe was reversed, they, while pretending not to have reversed it, um, that, uh, that accentuated the divide between the red and the blue states making them functionally two different nations. Mm. But I think that that's true already. You can't, you can't have uh, a nation that says that human life is disposable um, and have half of them say yes and half say no. Mm. All right. Yeah, it does seem to be like just kind of one, one brick in, in a lot of things that does separate a lot of the states, and I think we're seeing that now, just economically and in policy-wise. One of the one of the interesting sections too in your book uh, says uh, the prosperity of the red states. He had visited there enough, and their prosperity was kind of hard to miss. But he invariably thought that what they were uh, were doing was cheating or refusing to pay their fair share. Mm. He had been a young man when the mass exodus of business and businessmen from California had begun, and this too was interpreted as radically self-centered behavior. 
on their part. Again, a little bit of prophecy here <laughs> in the mass, <laughs> mass migration of exit. I remember your podcast, you're talking about U-Haul rates uh, oh, yeah. from, between, you know, <laughs> Idaho and, and, and California. That, yeah. that's, that's amazing. This might be bringing extra information, but if you wanted to rent a U-Haul truck in Portland to go to Boise, as opposed to Boise to go to Portland, it's going to cost 10 times the amount, uh, like 90 bucks versus yeah. 900 bucks. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that's because um, these cities are emptying out. Mm. California is emptying out. Now, uh, Governor Newsom in a, in a stroke of genius has decided to phase out gas powered automobiles. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So he's going he's gonna to make all the cars electric when California can't keep the lights on for their electric <laughs> needs now, right? Yeah. Right. So, the, the turbines and the in the the smoke is blocking out the sun for the solar ray, solar panels, and yeah, and all the cars are electric. When, I mean, when they do things like this, is it just you know, is it just they've been given over to a debased mind, or are they being intentionally malicious when they do these kind of things? Are they just? It's almost like the kid who knocks over his Legos because he can. Yeah, we spent an hour putting it together, but it's mine and I'll destroy it if I want to. Or is it just yes. they can't think straight? Yeah, some, some, uh, some of them honestly don't know what they're doing. They, they just are economically ignorant. Mm -hmm. Some of them know what they're doing, but it's a rebellion thing. Uh, in, in, um, in Paradise Lost, Milton has Satan say, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm. I believe that there's a certain kind of person who would rather, if he can be in charge of a smoldering ruin, he'd prefer that to being just an ordinary schmo mm. in a prosperous uh, nation. Mm. So th there, there are people who would say, yeah, I know, I know it's destroying it. I know it's tearing it down but that's what they want. They, it's envy, it's destruction, and that's the point. Mm. Other people are more naive. They, they, they really do believe that the top 1% could pay their fair, fair share of the taxes and, and make everybody wealthy. Mm. They actually do think that. Yeah, that's kind of a, a, a um, self-idolatry right like you know of, of being our own gods and that seems to be the number one idol is, is right. ourselves right our self-esteem and and those things and and i was wondering about that as far as like you know the the idea of the sex robots and uh you know it's funny like this this was the uh september issue of national geographic meet the robots where <laughs> they talk all about the coming automation and in those things and sex robots and robots to do everything you know even uh, they were talking about like uh, was one Buddhist wanted to recreate the Buddha to hear the words from the Buddha himself, and so maybe think of this like as like uh, an, an idolatry. Uh, are robots a graven image in, in some sorts uh, of ourselves to, to of, our, of ourselves to yes. worship ourselves and to serve ourselves and right. yeah. So then it's like, but we're we've already been doing that in our worship of the self like one of the lines of the book that i thought was too it says the kink is in their soul not in their lusts right right and so that's like it's 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 in there and that's what needs to be right we've been, right? we've been worshiping ourselves for decades now for a long long time but worship gradually is uh, over time worship gradually becomes explicit um the the gods the gods will demand a temple at some point Mm. And what's interesting too, I'm reading White Fragility right now. So, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so sorry. Just, to, just to be able to say I've done the reading. Uh, but there is this idea, and what I see in our society today too is there, there, there seems to be a desire to. I find myself agreeing a lot with with this book, uh, White Fragility, but not for the same reasons, such as we are sinner, we are we are racist, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's like okay, we are sinners and there's nothing we can do about it. That's true, and, but we are regenerated by God and we can't, there, there is a savior and it's not us, as they would say, you know, worshiping ourselves. We yeah. have more government policy, more, you know, the right person in office, whatever, uh, just looking for a human solution where we look as, to Christ as a solution, but there is a desire for regeneration. And I think that's what we see in this kind of Marxist 
BLM movement too of they're not trying to save America from racism. They're trying to destroy America and raise something new in its place, right? Because right. the system itself is racist and, and evil and bad. But but in that there is a desire for regeneration. And in in you know is that a is that our image bearing of God showing itself of 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 a, a desire yes. to regenerate yeah. and we just can't do it ourselves. And you can you can see this um, if you. you if you believe in the creator-creature distinction, then God is the Lord of regeneration. Yeah. If you are um, a materialist, an atheist, and you believe that all is one and there is no creator above, there's still the need for regeneration, but it has to come from somewhere inside the system, right? right. And for the revolutionary, where, rege where regeneration comes from is chaos. So if you read Ovid's Metamorphoses, for example, first there was chaos, and then that gave birth to the gods. Mm -hmm. the, the revolutionary believes that you have to burn the system down so that the phoenix will arise out of the ashes. Mm -hmm. There's, there, there really is a striking uh, faith issue here. Yeah. Um, so you, you burn the system down. And there will be a regenerative, uh, a, a new man will arise out of the ashes. And that's what they believe is going to happen. Um, there can be no compromise with the old system. Clear out the old leaven. It's got to be total destruction down to the ground. Mm. And then, lo and behold, it doesn't happen, right? So if Venezuela hasn't come back, you know, the Soviet Union didn't bounce back. Uh, you kill... Uh, someone once, uh, I think it was Stalin, who said that if you want to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. Um, and then one of the visitors over there once said, well, I see the broken eggs. Where's the omelet? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there does seem that you never get one, no matter how many eggs right. you break. And that's the, <laughs> that's the white fragility. That you, as long as you're white, you're going to be in racism. Right. As long as though, though there is no, you can't say sorry enough. You can't confess and apologize yeah. enough. It's almost Martin Luther's dilemma of, oh, I can't, I, I, he goes to confession and then walks back and see, has a bad thought about another monk and oh, right back into it. So you can never leave the confessional booth. Yeah. And that's true right. because you can never apologize enough because you can never be righteous enough. Mm. So again, it's so weird to see that in, in society, like the, the total like helplessness of man, the, the, you know, and then the regeneration that's, that's needed. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to touch on this last point and we can let you go on this. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is the idea of the, the gelding, uh, <laughs> prancing around like he's a uh, stallion. So, you know, typically when a man has a lot of children, you don't question his, uh, sexual proclivity because obviously he has the evidence. Uh, we don't have that now. So we have more of a, a braggadociousness towards your sexuality with no evidence of it. Right. It's the freedom. Uh, the president of the UFC, Dana White said, it, kind of something to that extent. He said, I know a lot of guys who would be willing to cut off their genitals if it meant they could be world champion, right? Meaning why do the hard work when I can have the easy, the easy payment? Uh, right. Kind of the, the freedom with the trans, of, right, the trans, with the trans yeah. Yeah, fighting, as a, fighting as a woman. Yeah. Um, but the freedom of slavery, I guess. I'll, I'll give away all of my prosperity. I'll give away all of my future, all of my inheritance if everyone just leaves me alone and I get to do whatever I want. So, what's the cause? I know that the root cause is sin, but it seems that society is adopted as a whole. Is it Solomon's report called it the extended adolescence, right? It's, we yeah. think we're living our, our best life, but we're just in limbo for years. Your thirties don't matter anymore. Yeah. This is what Rush Dooney once called the revolt against maturity. Mm. Exactly that. So yeah. I see Asa, don't Hell grow is, up. Is, Asa Hell seems to be a breath of fresh air in that of like, <laughs> he knows what he wants and he goes after it. And he's, right with that he, wa he, he wants to grow up yes right he wants to grow up and wanting to grow up is one of the major indicators that you have been growing up mm. so oh that's okay so let's let's touch on that to finish it off what's what's the what's the spark that we need to put into our children we both have sons um to get them to want to grow up right like, for instance you know personally for me it was a little late i i kind of wandered the path before i got there uh, and you know, for him, I don't want that. I want him to see it early and to, to attack it head on. Right. So when, when young boys imitate their fathers mm -hmm. or older brothers or men that they see at church and they want to be, you know, um, they, if the boy goes out in the backyard with his little toy hatchet, 
wanting to be a lumberjack. Um, that's the kind of thing that you come alongside and praise instead of yeah. mocking or uh, God has built that God has built little boys to want to become men. That's creational. God has built little girls to want to become women. So when, when little girls start playing with dolls, we shouldn't mock it or make fun of it or tease yeah. them. We should encourage it. You know, let, let's, how, how can you do this better? Or, uh, you know, mom making doll clothes or uh, dad, taking him out and showing him how to use the ax or how to mm. sharpen, uh, you know, how to sharpen the ax and, and how to be a man. Mm. Right. So if, if you don't, if you don't teach boys how to be a man, the men won't know. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so how, uh, how do you mow the lawn? How do you, mm. how do you check the oil? How do you, you know, there are all sorts of things that dads need to be invested with their sons and not feel ashamed in any way about the gender stereotyping that's going on. Mm. <laughs> that, right. That's the thing that ought to be made the joke. Yeah, and hopefully our sons will grow up to be the kind of men who would throw a sex robot into a trash compactor and not try <laughs> to marry one. <laughs> right, ultimately. Uh, right. Pastor, thanks for, have, thanks for uh, coming on and, and just having this time with us. Uh, and talk with us. It's, it's, it's been a real honor. Is there anything you wanted to add or anything that kind of is going on that, that you want to make known or kind of get out oh, there? Um, well, in about an hour from now, we're going to have our third Psalm Sing um, awesome. here in, in Moscow. Great. And we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah. uh, we've had some, we've had some excitement. Our, Donald Trump just today tweeted about our last Psalm Sing. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Maybe it'll be... <laughs> Maybe you're starting up your, your satellite uh, Christchurch location in cell block E. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right, Pastor Wells, thanks a lot. So, thank you very much. Um, just, I, I can't, again, I can't tell you what an honor has been to just talk with you and, and share this time with, with us. And um, yeah. thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.